Before we get started on this episode, I just want to say all people interviewed for this podcast speak solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. This episode is another installment of a special mini-series where I interview Holocaust educators about their thoughts on Holocaust education and remembrance today. This tragedy is also known as the Shoah, which is the Hebrew word for destruction. The last episode, Miss Strobel Weaves History, involved talking to Trudy Strobel, an artist, educator, and survivor of the Holocaust. Today, we're going to hear from the next generation, specifically a rabbi whose parents were survivors. Sharing the Silence Hi there, my name is Rabbi Peter H. Grumbacher of uh, Congregation Beth Emeth, Wilmington, Delaware. I'm the rabbi emeritus of this congregation. I interviewed Rabbi Grumbacher in Delaware in May of 2019, but I met him in November of 2018 in Staunton, Virginia. I was on my road trip at the time, and I was going through a rough patch. My hometown was reeling from the borderline bar mass shooting and the Woolsey fire. I was spending all my time holed up in an Airbnb, desperately reaching out to loved ones for updates. But that Friday night, I managed to drag myself out of that hole and drove 40 minutes through the Blue Ridge Mountains to attend a special Shabbat dinner at Temple House of Israel. It felt like a somber occasion. Not only were people reacting to the fires and the borderline shooting and the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, but it was also the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass a time when synagogues and Jewish businesses across Germany were burned and pillaged. It's widely considered a major turning point in the early stages of the Holocaust. And that's why Grumbacher was at this Shabbat dinner. He's a Shoah educator who teaches people through the story of his father. Before I you know, tell you my father's story, we have to understand the title of it is uh, Sharing the Silence, The Child of a Survivor Tells His Father's Story. Uh, silence was what I grew up with. So I felt as a second generation, as a child of a survivor, uh, if I don't do it, who will? And now that we're so many decades after the event, and it's becoming more and more ancient history, I feel it really incumbent upon me to do so. Grumbacher's parents grew up in Germany. Little by little, their rights diminished as the Nazis gained more and more power. Laws were passed that stripped Jews of their citizenship and forbade them from having romantic or sexual relations with those whom the Nazis perceived as true Germans. These restrictions were race-based. It didn't matter whether a person with Jewish ancestry practiced the religion or even converted to Christianity. In the eyes of the Nazis, it was set. And the laws would also be applied to black Germans and the Roma people. For the Jews of Germany, this boiled over with Kristallnacht. The next day, the Nazis came for Grumbacher's family. My parents were in my mom's hometown of Heschingen in Germany, uh, visiting my grandfather who was in the hospital. In the middle of the night, they got a knock on the door, and my father opened the door, and there were Gestapo agents asking for my grandfather. My father said he's in the hospital, and when they asked him who he was, and if he was Jewish, he said yes, they arrested him and he was interred in Dachau. Dachau was the original concentration camp and the model for how the others were built. 
prisoners were subjected to forced labor and medical experiments. But when Grumbacher's father was there, it was mostly a prison camp for political dissenters. The more heinous abuses would come later. Even before the arrest, the Grumbachers were trying to flee Germany. They wanted to go to America. And the necessary paperwork to emigrate came shortly after his father was detained. So his mother went to Dachau to give him the papers. She walked right up to the electric fence, surrounded by guard towers, and handed him the documents. And he took the papers and went up to the uh, commandant of Dachau, uh, said, I have here the papers to leave, put them on the desk. Uh, the commandant could have killed him on the spot, but being the those interested in, in detail, he looked through all of the documents. He said, alles in Ordnung, everything is in order. And he told my father he could leave. Grumbacher's parents were fortunate. They got out of Germany before the trapdoor closed. That wasn't the case for countless others. Many tried to flee, but it wasn't that simple. Most countries, including the United States, were unwilling to let them in. This was most infamously the case with the St. Louis, a ship of Jewish refugees who were refused entry to the United States, Cuba, and Canada. After floating just miles away from freedom, they were sent back to Europe, where many would perish in the Shoah. And the U.S. Congress rejected a bill that would have let 20,000 Jewish children seek asylum. Once he made it to America, Grumbacher's father wrote a letter to Albert Einstein, asking him to sponsor his mother and sisters. They had a small family connection, and the famed physicist worked hard to rescue people from the Nazi regime. He personally sponsored about 250 people. But Einstein wrote back to Grumbacher's father, saying he couldn't help. The U.S. State Department had cut him off. My father wanted to uh, get the necessary affidavits for his mother and sister to leave. Uh, he was unable to do so, and he found out subsequently, I, sort of I found out subsequently, that they had uh, died in Auschwitz. He knew that they had died in the Holocaust, but not Auschwitz. While many Jews were trying to get out of Europe, Grumbacher's father returned, this time as an American soldier. He chose to fight the Nazis as opposed to serving in the Pacific Theater. And that choice ended up serving him well, specifically during one battle in Italy when his platoon was surrounded by German soldiers. My father realized there was something that had to be done, and he was the one who was going to do it. So in his most authoritative voice, he yelled out in German, because that was his mother tongue. He yelled out in German, surrender, we're surrounded by the Americans. And miraculously, the Germans surrendered to him. They couldn't believe it. The people in his unit just could not believe it. But knowing his voice... I could believe it. So that, that, was, that was an amazing story. And I always get goose, goosebumps when I tell it because I wouldn't be telling it had it turned out differently, just as had the commandant not allowed him to leave. It's quite a story. And in a way, it's central to Grumbacher's identity. He's spent the last two decades telling it to people all over the country. And a major reason he joined the rabbinate was because his parents were survivors. Yet growing up, he heard none of it. When I finally found out more information about my dad, I spoke to uh, my four friends. Five of us grew up together. Four of us had parents who were uh, survivors. And I asked them what they knew about the Holocaust. And every single one of them said hardly anything. Nothing was spoken about it. But that's not unusual. And it was surprising because Washington Heights, that neighborhood I grew up in, was called the Fourth Reich because there were more German-Jewish refugees 
uh, that settled in that neighborhood than anywhere else in the world. But there, there was nothing said. And the, it wasn't so much nobody in the school or nobody in my family, but even in my synagogue, which was made up mostly of Holocaust survivors. It's similar to how Trudy Strobel, the survivor interviewed in the previous episode, did not talk about her experience until later in life. Strobel eventually told her children, but many others never did. Grumbacher says that could cause unhealthy consequences. Looking back on it, it was fine. But I was lucky because I have uh, friends and acquaintances who grew up in uh, similar circumstances. You know, it just confirms what Helen Epstein wrote years ago in a book called Children of the Holocaust, which dealt with second generation children of survivors, that uh, many of them grow up with, um, have some really major uh, emotional and psychological difficulties because this black cloud hung over their home. They didn't know what was going on. The parents did. So they grew up with this with this cloud of silence and, and something was going on that created a, a secret, basically. They live with a secret. And nowadays, you know, many of those people who are children of survivors have real, you know, major issues. Things started to change in 1960 when Israeli agents captured Adolf Eichmann, the man considered to be the architect of the Holocaust. With that, many chose to end their silence. And the reason they did that was because if he'd been on trial and no witnesses came forth, he would be let free. But thousands came to Jerusalem to testify against him. And uh, people in this country who were not able to go over there felt that it was their responsibility now to say something. They would witness in this country. And that's when it all began. When When Eichmann was captured, it was the beginning of Holocaust education by the survivors themselves. While this shift occurred on a societal level, it was still not the case in Grumbacher's living room. But when I first realized there was something going on was when, um, I, I think I was eight years old or so, and I asked my grandmother, my mother's mother, what happened to my other grandmother? And uh, she said in German, Hitler hat sie ermordet. A guy named Hitler killed her, and I didn't know what that meant. And when I asked my mother, I, when I told my mother that my Oma, my grandmother, had told me that, she looked at me with a look that I'd never seen before or since. She's, and the look told me that's something we don't talk about. So that's when I started to be really nosy. Still, it wouldn't be until Grumbacher was a rabbi that he made serious headway with his father. We were having a major family celebration, and my brother-in-law, who at the time was a teenager, uh, I was in the kitchen. I heard him say in the dining room, Hey, Ernie, my father, I heard you were in Dachau. What happened? And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. But what I really couldn't believe, not so much that he asked the question, was that my father started answering. And I knew that if I walked into that room, he would stop talking. Eventually, I had to. I walked in. That was it. He just stopped talking. The next day, he, my mother, and I were alone. And I said to him, listen, Larry, my brother-in-law, is not a blood relative. You know, why didn't you tell me any of that? And my father, in his unique style, you know, said, ach which means leave me alone, don't bother me, it's not important. You know, you fill in the blank, that's what it meant. But I finally said to him, no, 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 now you got to start talking. And he did, a little bit. And then he did a little bit more. 
Grumbacher managed to get bits of the story from his parents, but large portions of it would not come out until after his father died. It's then Grumbacher heard about a cousin of his who did a class project on his father, and a lot of the story was there. Family members, as I said, they had that secret over over their heads. Um, he probably felt safe, and I really believe that he, he had to say something to somebody. And I also believe that he was hoping... <laughs> I mean, he didn't know the question would be asked, but I think he was hoping that that his talking uh, would be heard by me. Um, and I, I think that's, re- you know, really the, uh, the the amazing thing about that. And through him, he would tell it to the world. Grumbacher first felt the need to share the story after the Columbine shooting, to talk to people about violence and his personal connection to it. And he's been telling the story ever since. Well, I, I usually start by asking, especially if it's a group of kids, if they understand, uh, if they know what the Holocaust is. And I say that six million Jews died. I have, I have something to say about that in a second. But, you know, six million is an incredible number. And, you know, what's six million? Who knows? But if you tell the story of one person, that brings home the point. The only person I can speak about is my father. And then I always open it for questions. And I always end with the same point. If any of you want to thank me, you thank me by this. If a Holocaust denier comes up to you and says the Holocaust never happened, look him in the eye and say the Holocaust happened. Three words. That's all you have to do. Because the deniers, they they know the Holocaust happened. They're denying because they have other reasons, not the least of which is anti-Semitism. And nowadays, you know, it's, it's decades since the war. More and more people are minimizing it or denying it altogether. There is plenty of data to confirm Grumbacher's concerns. According to the Anti-Defamation League, only 54% of the world's population has heard of the Holocaust. In the U.S., a 2018 survey by the Conference of Jewish Material Claims Against Germany found 11% of U.S. adults have not heard of or are unsure if they have heard about the Holocaust, and that number is doubled when it comes to millennials. The question is, for example, what do we do about Holocaust Memorial Day programs, Yom HaShoah? Years ago, I said, this has to change because you know, older people might be going to this to these programs uh, in memory of those who died, but younger people weren't. Well, how much the more so today? Fewer and fewer people show up in uh, Holocaust memorial programs. Before this talk, about two weeks ago, I wrote an article that uh, a think tank should be developed by rabbis and educators to come up with creative ideas as to how Yom HaShoah programs should be uh, fashioned so that they would attract people. Grumbacher himself doesn't think he has all the answers, but he says making education programs more active could help. Well, one one idea that I had um, put into practice quite a number of years ago, when I just began having this feeling, when we had our community Om HaShoah program and I was in charge of it, I didn't have the usual one speaker, you know, to a large group of people. We divided it into groups, and the people who spoke, they were both Holocaust survivors and educators, took a subject that uh, wasn't necessarily connected to death and, and destruction and, and stuff, but rather to the to the whole idea that what do, what do we learn from this? You know, how can we build on, on our knowledge? 
uh, what can we what can we teach churches? What can we teach uh, in schools? And we we got together and we thought about it and and uh, and I I thought it was I thought it really really worked very well. I was told it did also. But that's the kind of thing that we have to start thinking about, because that might and I stress might attract younger people, and it has to be put in a way that is positive. You know, people are sick and tired of hearing about six million Jews died. I'm not minimizing it, but they are. Well, they're not minimizing the number, but they're minimizing the Holocaust. It's like an unconscious whatever, you know, that kind of a, of a response. But younger people really have to tell us what it is that might attract them. He's also witnessed the power of a personal story. But you talk about one, and they, they stare. They really, really stare. They're fascinated by an individual story. The, these are the things that I feel, and I know that there are many other things out there as well, but, you know, one story at a time. That might work. Grumbacher says the need for Holocaust education also ties into addressing a rise in anti-Semitic incidents. This interview was recorded shortly after the terrorist attack at the Chabad Synagogue in Poway, California. One person was killed and three others were injured. The admitted shooter said Adolf Hitler was a role model of his. You know, we were living in a, in a fairyland type of uh, environment. No more. No more. It's, it's getting very difficult. And we have to ask people straightforward, you know, what, what are your feelings towards Jews? I'm talking about non-Jews. You know, we, uh, preaching to the choir is one thing, but you go out there, you speak to, to people who are, who are Christians, who are Muslims, who are Hindus, who are Buddhists. Say to them, what do you feel about Jews? And to knock off the stereotypes as best as you can. When I speak in schools, I often talk about stereotypes. And I always say that stereotypes, you know, there's something true behind stereotypes. Um, I'm not going to go into the details, but I explain to them that stereotypes just are more uh, enhanced um, aspects of, of, of what is the quote-unquote truth. So I think people have to express themselves, tell rabbis and educators how they feel about Ju Judaism and Jews so that we can talk about it. Dialogue is important. And I know one thing, misinformation is out there. For Grumbacher, Holocaust education is personal, and it should be so for everybody. Every individual has to be the best person that she or he can be. There's also one more thing. The Jews cannot, at this point in history, we cannot own the Holocaust and just say, that's it. Nothing worse ever happened to anybody. It's a matter not so much of numbers. It's a matter of intensity of hatred. And there were so many times when people were killed because they were this religion or that race or, or had this particular perspective. We, we have to teach about all kinds of holocausts, I believe, in order to, in order to, to, to make ours kosher. You know, it's not just ours. And even the Holocaust with a capital H happened to the Jews is not just ours. There were gays who were killed. There were uh, political prisoners who were killed. You know, it's not just the six million, you know, not just, but millions of other people. So, you know, we have to distance ourselves from this notion that we had it worse than anybody, even if we did. Of all the people I talked to for my Holocaust education series, Grumbacher is the only person who is a rabbi. 
By that nature, he does more than educate, but also helps to connect our world to that of the divine. So I asked him, what is his response to people who question how God could have let something like the Shoah happen? I can only reflect what my father said. He was, as I said, he was very involved in the synagogue, and people would say to him, you know, Ernie, after everything that happened to you and your family, how can you believe in God, let alone just doing the stuff in the synagogue? And my father's answer was always this, God had nothing to do with it. And I was, I really, really started thinking about that. So I'm able to compartmentalize, you know, that God is not omnipotent. You know, sometimes God leaves it to people to screw up their lives. You know, it doesn't have to be a divine move. So my feeling is, is that God is, as the Reconstructionists say, though I'm not a Reconstructionist rabbi, God is the influence for the good. And we have, and, and our role as rabbis, our role as lay people is to spread good, to do good, to be good. As the world approaches the day where there will no longer be any living survivors of the Shoah, it's important to realize many of their children have stories to share as well. The tale of Holocaust survivor and soldier Ernst Grumbacher is also part of the narrative of his son, Rabbi Peter Grumbacher. The silence he grew up with, the struggles to pull the story out of a reserved parent, and sharing it all with a world that needs more perspective on trauma and violence. This was the second part of a special mini-series on Holocaust education. Next episode will be the conclusion, where we hear from those who teach the tragedy to college students and young children. American Rabbi Project, Sharing the Silence, was written and produced by me, Justin Regan. Derek Pova handles the web stuff. Thanks to Jeremy Crone, Sarit Rathbone, Beth Vanderstoop, Dylan Abrams, and my parents for the assistance. You can contact me by emailing justin at rabbiproject.com. You can also follow me on Twitter with the handle at Rabbi Project and Facebook.com slash Rabbi Project. And until next time, shalom and safe driving.